Our hats are from the same company. Mine says dad vibes and his says kid vibes. Kid vibes. Oh, I love it. That's fantastic. <laughs> so one day he will be as tall as you and you will try to recreate that picture. <laughs> and I will hurt my back again trying to lift him up. <laughs> Welcome everybody to another episode of Bearded Bible Brothers. Today we're going to continue our walk through the book of Joel. Last time we were together we got um, a little over halfway through chapter two. And so we already covered verses uh, down through, I think, verse 17 or 18, but we're going to kick it back to verse 15 because that's kind of the start of a new section. But before we do, how is the handsomely bearded Mr. Josiah this morning? Well, apparently I'm doing better than you, but that pulled back <laughs> and everything out. Um, but uh, doing well, doing well. We uh, actually, uh, one thing I've neglected to mention is that uh, we, we've spent the weekend camping, um, which seems kind of odd with me now sitting at home. <laughs> but uh, I took the kids up uh, on Saturday night and got the camp set up and stayed the night. And then Heather, uh, we traded spots so that uh, someone can be home with the animals. Uh, oh. <laughs> so, gotcha. yeah. Yeah, not as much uh, freedom <laughs> as we once had before when it came to just being able to go and do something such as camping. But now we've sure. got to do plan things out and do things a certain way. And Assuming so, you're um, not camping in the backyard. Correct. We're not camping in the backyard. We're <laughs> camping two hours away, actually. A nice okay, little gotcha. place with a lot of lodgepole pines and ponderosas. Oh, ponderosa pines. Beautiful place. Wonderful wildflowers. Just perfect so is that so, a little bit closer to the idaho border than you already are negative we it's actually farther away it's the exact oh, opposite so south yeah yeah we, we're very close to the idaho state line we're two miles from it so um we yeah we we went to a place we've been wanting to go to for a while um and living here actually puts us a little closer to where we where we wanted to go camping than where we nice. lived before so yeah very fun. Very, very fun. Cool. And uh, so, yeah, good fun weekend overall. And uh, things are going very well. I'm not feeling as gray today as I have. Good. So. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. But, um, I'm feeling a little bit more gray because my son started potty training officially <laughs> this weekend. So yes. he's doing well, but, but yeah, a little uh -huh. bit more. Gray. Oh, yeah. Don't worry. You'll get some more, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. So, all right. Well, as Matt said, we are a little bit about halfway. We're going to kind of get um, venture back um, into some verses that we covered last time, but only out of my eagerness did we cover them. I was so excited. Something Matt said something. Going, oh, I know that. That's what these next few verses say. <laughs> So um, we're going to backtrack just a little bit. We're still going to be in Joel chapter 2. And uh, it's, uh, it's coming to a very interesting part. Just a small little recap. We've read through chapter 1 and chapter 2. 
we read through um, and talked about the verse four back in chapter one about the different types of grasshoppers and, and, and what they're symbolizing. We talked about the day of Adonai, the day of the Lord, and um, what it bring, what it's going to bring about, what's going to happen, what it's going to look like. Uh, last week, we got into chapter two, and really chapter two, especially that first part, really got me thinking. Now, it mentions the horde as, uh, as the they and the them that's being discussed um, from about, let's see here, from verse three on. And um, talking about them as uh, fire, flame, horses, cavalry, chariots, warriors, and so on. And um, I was gonna, I was gonna say after last week, I was, I was, I was, the question came to mind: What kind of power would it take for me to know it's God, and how would I respond to that power? And I know I mentioned something like this in our last episode, but still to be able to see the precision that's outlined in these verses, especially when it says that in verse seven, that the warriors keep each one keeps his, to his own course without getting in the other's way. The precision that's going on here. Yeah. I still think that would be very, very freaky to see in real life. You'd almost think, <clears throat> Excuse me. You'd almost think um, something robotic or maybe Borg-ish. <laughs> um, I don't remember ever a Borg getting in the way of another Borg on Star Trek. Um, <laughs> I remember plenty of orcs getting in the way of other orcs on uh, Lord of the Rings. <laughs> but um, uh, the the precision of this, it just, I don't know. It, it really stuck with me as to what that would look like and how it would make me respond to it. Because it would seem unnatural, unusual, because we're already living in a in a reality and in a um, fixture of reality where things are out of place. It's a little bit more chaotic in, in 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 how we approach things and how just nature itself is just um, behaving within itself. Um, although I did see a video just yesterday of a wolf, no, a coyote and a badger kind of teaming up. It would seem that during the day, the, the coyote would be following the badger. And then at night, the badger would be following the coyote because the coyote could see better at night. And all do these trail cameras. It was really quite fascinating. But um, suffice it to say, to, to describe God's power as being so precise as this is really quite intriguing. Now, I didn't come to any uh, profound conclusion but it was just that type of thought pattern that just continues of going, this is who God is. This is what his power can look like. And it, and really, it just made me quiet and silent. And it just left me pondering this for, for, for days. And it's like, wow, I, I never really thought of it that way. Because we think of it in other ways, right? Um, we think of it in ways of, uh, okay, he's opening the Red Sea. He's opening the, the Arden River. Um, he's, uh, Jesus is creating wine. He's, uh, healing the blind and so forth. And we see this as being power. And now I'm being radically introduced to another idea of what his power can look like. Yeah. It's like, that's something to ponder. But what do you think? 
I think it's a radical introduction for us, mm-hmm. but very much not for for the ancient Middle Easterners. Oh, that's a good point. Yes, because yes. Um, anytime any any enemy conquers anything, or your neighbor mm-hmm. conquers another uh, n- neighboring nation, it it was just assumed that. Um, so just hypothetically, let's say the U.S. and Canada, because that's super ridiculous. So, so let's say that the U.S. decides to invade Canada and is successful. Uh-huh. If we had the same mindset, the the basic assumption on everybody's mind would be that the god or gods of the United States overpowered and took control over the territory allotted to the right. gods of the Canadians, right? Right. There exactly. was no such thing as atheists back there. There was nothing as no. foolish as atheism back then because everybody knew that no. that gods and spiritual beings existed. Very it was just so. a question of which one do you or your peoples worship. So Exactly. For us and, it might and, look this way because we're used to the biblical account and we're used to the god of of mercy and grace, slow right. to anger and abounding in steadfast love and kindness. But but for them at the time any conquering army, it, it it doesn't need to be said that the conquering army is coming with their gods. It was it was known. It was just right. one of those expectations of going, okay, that's why you have uh, Rahab even saying in Jericho, oh, we're terrified. Because <clears throat> they may not have, they understood that there was that spiritual aspect involved, that, that exactly. divine aspect. Um, and even God made it clear, I'm going to go before you. I'm going to set fear in their hearts. And God did exactly what he said he was going to do. And you see that take place and take hold in in uh, Rahab's commentary of the general populace of Jericho. And Jericho was considered the most fortified, strongest city in all of Canaan at that time. Mm -hmm. And here you got the strongest people in the country going, Okay, <laughs> we don't know what's going to happen, but we know it's not going to be good. Right. 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 And I just yeah. recently got done reading in um, Kings and Chronicles and Isaiah all have the account of when um, the Assyrians come down to Judea mm-hmm. and start threatening King Hezekiah and his people. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and um, mm-hmm. in their boasting, they say, don't. Don't let Hezekiah tell you or deceive you into thinking that that Adonai or Yahweh will save you because none of the other people's gods protected them when when we came through and our gods came through and decimated their nations. Mm-hmm. And then they make a false assumption. They even say, and didn't Hezekiah just take down all of the, the places of worship on the hills around Jerusalem? Didn't he mm-hmm. just take down all the places of worship to Yahweh? Right. Which was not true. He had taken down the places of worship to the false gods. False gods. Yep. Yep. And that's yep. what one of the reasons why why God um, showed favor to Hezekiah and the people in their repentance and in their trust of Him mm-hmm. to protect them was because mm-hmm. they were proving themselves to to be turning things around and and choosing Him above all else. Also. Right. But, so yeah, when when invasions <laughs> come, they come with the gods. Right. And j- this not to get on off on a tangent, but just to mention the idea that 
that you have your regional gods, and it was always believed that these gods were confined to these areas. Um, how interesting would it be then when a ruler took on deification and was able to transpose those borders? Yep. And yep. it really goes into an interesting – you could go into a very interesting psychological study, really, and, and just overall review of – of what it looked like when somebody whether it was Egyptian or uh, Assyrian or Babylonian would take on the idea that, Oh, I'm a God. Right. You're going to worship me. You even get that kind of idea out of uh, what is that the movie of uh, 300 with uh, Gerard with Butler. Xerxes. Yeah. Yep. With Xerxes. And so, <clears throat> and yet here in Israel, never once did a King or a ruler of any kind take on the idea. No, I'm God. Well, a lot of that, and this this is a true, true tangent, so maybe we save this full-length discussion <laughs> for another time, true. but a lot of it has to do with the, the flood narrative, believe it or not, because it all goes back to the biblical, everybody in the ancient Middle East, the ancient Mesopotamia had a flood narrative, and that's, yep. I mean, everybody all over the world, all the ancient civilizations have a flood narrative, and most of them also include one man and his family surviving on a small boat. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, but the, the biblical account f- directly flies in the face of and gives answer to all of the other ancient Mesopotamian accounts okay. in that the ancient Mesopotamians saw the Nephilim and the Watchers and what was going on as a good thing. Mm-hmm. And, and the other mm-hmm. ancient Mesopotamian texts called them the... Um, Apkalu or the Apkalanu or something like that. And they, yeah, um, I don't mean to be taking this tangent too far, but basically their kings were saying that they were endowed with power from the Apkalu. Right, right. And the the Mm -hmm. biblical account gives the alternative that no, these Apkalu or these Nephilim are rebelling against the one true God. And that was part of the reason for the flood. Mm-hmm. was to to reset things. And mm-hmm. so so the other ancient people groups have been claiming deification um, themselves or claiming to be inspired by deities mm-hmm. for a long, long time. And, and mm-hmm. that's why Israel largely hasn't, is because um, they usurped God when when they asked for a human king because they wanted to be like their neighbors, right. And they and God told Samuel the prophet, they're not rejecting you as yes. judge, they're rejecting me as their right. king. Yep. Um yep. but yep. but even then the, the human king Saul, David, Solomon, and, and those after the split of the nation mm-hmm. um never really claimed deification. Right, right. But it's interesting how that 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 thinking, that Mesopotamian thinking continued on, especially into the Philistines and their approach to the brothers of Gath namely yep. Goliath, which was one of the brothers, and that size, and what that size represented when it goes back to the, the flood narrative. You're absolutely right. As a matter of fact, just as a, uh, as a small, small side note, um, <clears throat> there a is side a note on the tangent we're not taking. <laughs> right. There's a fascinating series. It's a trilogy called the Cradle Land series. Um, and, You've mentioned uh, that before. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a Christian author uh, put out by Oak press i think it is um 
and I can't remember the name of the author off the top of my head. I could see the picture of the book. Anyways, it's a fascinating telling of everything before the flood and up to the flood and give some power dynamics of everything that was happening before the flood and definitely gives into this Mesopotamian line of thinking that we are discussing. So if you want a fun way of being able to review that, that's one way to do it. But <clears throat> but now we're getting into what what Adonai's day is going to look like and what it's going to call for. Um, it's not going to be relying upon these tall, the Rephaim, um, the, the Nephilim, all of these taller, more uh, powerful beings that were considered. Sometimes I think there was even one source that suggested that the sky people that are referred to within uh, Native American mythology is actually connected to the to the Nephilim and the, and the Rephaim. And so, but now we're getting into what God is, Adonai is calling his people to do. And one reason I brought this up once before, in a pre, and I think I even mentioned this last podcast, was that this comes into an area of um, where God is actually directing, quote, a service. If we were to look at this as a Christian service or as a, an evangelical church service, this is where God takes control and says, no, this is what you're going to do during this service. Right. And this is how you're going to do it. This is where even going, you're going to be standing in this service. But when it comes to verse 15, I would very much like you to read that and explain to us why blow a trumpet. Okay, sure. So you want me to read uh, like 15 through 20? Sure. Let's, let's, yes. Let's go through that. Okay. Part. Oh, yep. And for our listening audience, like I don't say this every episode, but I typically am reading through the Tree of Life version. Mm -hmm. And when Josiah reads, he's usually in the complete Jewish Bible. Yep, that one. All right. So Joel 2, starting in verse 15. Blow a shofar in Zion, or a trumpet in Zion. Sanctify a fast. Proclaim an assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even those nursing at breasts. Let the bridegroom come out from his bedroom and the bride from her chamber. Between the porch and the altar, let the Kohanim, the priests, ministers of Adonai, weep and let them say, Have pity, Adonai, on your people. Don't make your heritage a scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should the peoples say, Where is their God? Adonai will be zealous for his land and have compassion on his people. Adonai will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you the grain and the new wine and the fresh oil, and you will be satisfied with it. I will no longer make you a mockery among the nations, but I will remove the northern invader far from you. Yes, I will banish him to a dry and desolate land, his vanguard to the eastern sea and his rearguard to the western sea. His odor will go up. Yes, his stench will rise, for he has done great things. So... Uh, your question was, why blow a trumpet? Yeah, why blow a trumpet? I'm sure <clears throat> plenty of people would be interested because uh, if you've ever been, if you've never been or ever been to a Messianic or a Jewish uh, 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 service, there are shofars and they are blown. So, yep. so the shofar is the ram's horn trumpet and mm -hmm. they can look different. Some of them are, most of them are long and curly. Some of them are shorter and stuff, but um, but it's, it, the trumpet is, um, used in celebration, which is obviously not the case here, 
but mm-hmm. it, it's also used in warfare and in alerting a population of of something coming. Right. So the watchmen on the wall all had trumpets to mm-hmm. alert the populace, hey, I see something, I see an enemy army coming, or I see I see something that needs uh that you need to be alerted to. Yeah. So the blow yeah. the trumpet is uh it and it explains in the next section um mm-hmm. gather everybody i don't care yeah. if the groom and the bride are mid ceremony get them mm-hmm. out here i don't mm-hmm. care if the kids are act- actively suckling right now get them right. out here get the elders get the kings or the right. the leadership get mm-hmm. the the young the old the rich the poor get everybody out here everybody mm-hmm. needs to hear this everybody needs to repent if there's right. going to be any chance at at um god rescuing us from this exactly and so that the the point i wanted to make out was that is that it's nothing mystical there's nothing esoteric about this there is a very real reason why shofar was blown it was much like the signal fires and you'd see in any sort of story lord of the rings for example comes to mind it was to communicate it was also to get people's attention you didn't hear a shofar blown except for very specific reasons, um, which could lead into another conversation about, well, what kind of blo- shofar would be blown for this? What kind of shofar would be blown for that? How would you know if it was being done for a great assembly or how would you know which th- there's different ways to understand this? And that can definitely lead into that kind of, kind of conversation. Right. But even though we're talking, we're reading through what is ne- what is commonly known as poetic uh, language. There, it's not completely divorced from everything practical. I know that right. sometimes for us, we tend to get into this very esoteric philosophical line of thinking, if not completely allegor- allegorical even, to the point where, okay, this is representing something else. The shofar here is not representing something else. This is actually going very directly to uh, a, 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 a thing, an activity. A practical purpose. Yes, that was happening for yeah. very practical reasons, exactly. It's also a, a, a very easy comparison can be drawn to um, like uh, colonial warfare all, all the mm-hmm. way up through the American Civil War. The the drummers, the drummer boys right, would right. be, right, um, right. they would beat a different tune that the army mm-hmm. would know this tune means advance, this tune means hold the line, this tune means retreat yep stuff like that so so it's a musical instrument that's loud used for signaling purposes and the different way that it gets played means different things same exact thing and there's different systems for different cultures right so you could hear a blow horn blown and then you then, then everybody in that army knows okay i have to quickly look to one side to see whatever penance are being drawn up or what penance are being taken down and that's going to talk to me about where I need to go and what I need to do. Or, yeah, as you just said, so there, there's different systems to this, but <clears throat> this is the system that Israel had. Right. And it had deep cultural, traditional, and even theological um, significance for what's happening. And the significance here is that it's proclaiming a holy fast, call for a solemn assembly. There's a very specific type of assembly being called for here. And I think that becomes even more of a question of, well, how would they know that based on the blow of this so far? So that's where that's that's where that com- that question and that conversation can take place. But we're sure. not going to 
dwell on that right now. We're going to move on. Um, if anything, please be encouraged that, hey, there's a question, go run with it and do a study on it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we've got 16 and 17. As I mentioned last time, this is, uh, and, and I've even mentioned several several podcasts ago, this is where God gets very, very specific as to a placement. The people that he's calling, he's calling everybody in Israel. Other people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the leaders. Children, infants sucking um, at their mother's uh, breast, let the and even the bridegroom and the bride, which makes me even wonder. Well, maybe there was a, an occasion where maybe some of those were called and others didn't have to. Maybe the bridegroom or the bride got to, and that can even go back into a study of Deuteronomy, which can be fascinating when it comes to that. But it, this is so important that everybody's being called. Um, now, and then the Kohanim, let the Kohanim who serve Adonai stand weeping between the vestibule and the altar. Now, we already know that this Joel is being written at a time where the temple has already been built. We already get the layout of the temple and the vestibule, which in, if you go into second temple period, you would basically see what would be known as Solomon's porch being in that vestibule area, which is gate, altar, holy, holy, holy of holies, you've got that vestibule right in here, okay? So you've got that entrance, and then you've got the altar. I'm not doing this for Matt's benefit. Let's do I'm not, Just be clear, Matt knows this. We're doing this for the benefit of our, of our um, audience. But, um, yeah, so that, that's where the placement is when you either think of it, especially when you think of it within the, the temple uh, design and layout. Yeah, and it's... It's basically the the outer portion to um, to where Jewish men were allowed to go. Right. Yes. The court of the women and the court yes. of the Gentiles would be outside of of this. Yes. But from from the the uh, portico to the altar is where the the priesthood and the Jewish men who were um, not unclean for some reason or another would be allowed to to congregate so this is this is getting in close to where god is as close as as the jewish men are allowed to be right let them say spare your people adonai don't expose your heritage to mockery or make them a byword among the nations why should the people say where is their god which we just got done talking about when it comes to these armies invading. God mm -hmm. is still very present. He's still very involved. But that same question could be going back to when, this, the, the, again, this is scripture hearkening back. We've already said before that um, when it came to, came, came to even Hillel's statement that um, everything else is commentary to the Torah. Okay? So... We're going back to the Torah. We're going back to the Pentateuch with that kind of thinking because you've got the type of thinking where the Israelites were saying, okay, go up and take it. No, we're not going to go take it. Oh, now we'll go take it. Well, God says, no, I'm not going with you. Don't go. They go anyways. They get their butts kicked. <laughs> and they're, they're coming back and they're going, that could be the question of, well, where is their God? And would they be asking that? Probably not because God's already made it very clear that he wasn't going with them. But that would definitely be a question for the, the opposite side. Where is their God? They're doing something without a God. So right. there's more to that conversation that we've been talking about so far. So, And you can even rewind it even further to um, Exodus after the golden oh, yeah. calf incident. Yeah. 
right. when God and God and Moses are up on top of the mountain, God says, "Stand aside, Moses. I'm gonna I'm gonna obliterate these people because they've become debased." Mm-hmm. And the Hebrew term there is, um, they've they've become on a par with the Nephilim, and they've become right. on par with the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. So I'm going to do to them, I'm gonna destroy them as I've done before. Mm-hmm. And Moses um, gives him a twofold answer of. God, you really don't want to do that, and here's why. Mm-hmm. Not only did you promise Abraham that you would give this the the promised land to his offspring, but you promised you would do it in 400 years, and you right. can't go back on your word. You can't start over with me. You have mm-hmm. to take this people in. And mm-hmm. so he, God and Moses have conversation, and, and Moses, um, in chapter 34, I think, 33, 34, He's he has to he asked God three four five times. You have to come with us because God says, "Fine, you t- I won't destroy them. You take the people into the promised land, but I can't go with you. Mm-hmm. If I spend too much time around this people, I'm so angry and frustrated, and that that I'll probably consume them. Yeah, with fire. And Moses says, "No, we can't go without you. We can't do anything without you. That uh, I I appreciate your position, but that doesn't work for us." I'm glad you took it back there because right here, God is telling specifically the Kohanim priests and the high priest, the priests basically to, to basically do what Moses was doing there, which yes. goes back even farther to Genesis two and three. When you see the words, you usually see them in, in the English as suitable helper or suitable help meet. Um, I'm trying to recall the first word. I don't know why this first word is such a, a, a struggle for me. Heneg, Keneg, something like that. Eretz. Keneg, Eretz. And what that is saying is, is that this is someone who stands facing you, opposing you. In the sense that we get to have an opportunity to where you get to stand face to face. Basically, you're, you're being put almost on equal terms, but not really. You're, but still, you're being put on... To, to a position where you can stand to their face and saying, hey, you know what? No, I get to stand in opposition to what you're saying. And it's showing what kind of relationship that Adam and Eve was to have with each other. But it's also showing even with the narrative that, that, that you just said, the, the, the type of relationship God's wanting to have with his people. And now he's doing the same thing with the Kohanim. Hey, no, this is something I'm wanting you to say to me. God's right. kind of having to now orchestrate what has already been demonstrated, but has obviously been very forgotten, right? And just for and clarification, stand opposed to you for your own betterment. Betterment, yes. Be yes, able to yes. get in your face with some chutzpah and say, yeah. I don't think that's a good idea and here's why. Correct. Sorry, not yes, not just for the sake of, no, you're not in charge, but um, <laughs> Dr. Tim Mackey dis- uh, defines it, uh, um, and Eric, I, I love his definition. He and he does a whole series on it on the Bible project. Um, but he says that his favorite definition is a delivering ally. Mm. And sometimes mm. it's they jump, okay. they lock arms with you and march right alongside you. Sometimes it's they can they can be right there with you and say, uh, your plan is is off and it's not in your best interest or your people's best interests or our best interests. You should consider doing something different. I haven't really heard it described that way. Okay. I'll have to give that one some thought. That I, I can see how that would work. 
Interesting. Yeah. But yet here's God calling back to that. Everything just keeps calling back Absolutely. to that. Absolutely. So um, continuing on, when then Adonai will become jealous for. So now we kind of shift from the people to the land. Yes. And a reflection of that land to the people. And we've already had that conversation before. I'm not going to reiterate, but just as a quick reminder, when you look at when Israel was occupying land, it produced more than when someone else was. It's Always. truly extraordinary the way that that covenant is so, so fixedly connected between God, his people, and the land. Both historically and modern. Exactly. So, but um, I will send you grain, wine, and olive oil, enough to satisfy you. Now, the reason I want to point that ver that portion of the verse out, enough to satisfy you. Think of this. You, sometimes people call it the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Daily bread. So this entire concept even goes, as, as we've talked before, all the way back to um, the Exodus. People hoarding manna. People hoarding the, the pheasant. And what happens? It goes bad. Right. And what I like what I like about this is that it continues to, the Torah tent continues to be a guidance, a, an instructor of sorts, of going, this is not the kind of way I would have you dependent upon God, and nor how I would have you behave with material things. God, give us the stare, the bread. I, I will send you grain, wine, and olive, enough to satisfy you. Do we need to feel glutton? Do we need, somebody recently said, instead of feeling 100% full, Fill 80% full. That way your body can do what it needs to do to actually do something with that food. So this just continues to um, connect Scripture back and forth through itself. And God continuing to saying, I'm giving enough to you to satisfy you. I'm giving enough to you so that you know that I'm still the one, I'm still the provider here. And you're still getting what you need. May not be everything you want, but it's definitely everything you need. Right. Let's be thankful for that. Right, and no longer will I make you a mockery among the nations. So, with this, with this next verse, I I think it's I think it's really interesting. I I will take the northerner away. Remember back way back, Gog of Magog. Where is he coming from? He's coming from the north. Right, and largely all of it, throughout history which at the time of Joel, it was still future. But um, most invaders of that piece of real estate come in from the north. Yeah. Right. Whether it was the Assyrians or the Babylonians, or um, later it was um, in fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy, it was Antiochus Epiphanes and, and Rome and... The, by and large, invaders come from the north. That's just the way the geography plays out. Mm -hmm. If you want to march down through Israel, you do it from the north. You do it from the north. That's absolutely right. I was recently finishing up um, listening to Cindy Parker again. I know I've mentioned her before, listening to the land. It's really amazing when you begin to understand Israel and its geographical layout and what it facilitates. Yes, it facilitates a northern invasion, which is why... Um, Armageddon um, is where it's positioned. It is in the northern part. And it's in the amount of times it's traded hands. 
it's really quite phenomenal. But anyway, that that's 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 exactly right. And so, um, uh, let's see here. That is Baron driving to a land that is waste and barren with his vanguard toward the eastern and the rear guard toward the western. So you can begin to see how it's even being oriented this way. Um, vanguard is what goes before. Mm-hmm. Okay, that it was given another biblical image. That's that angel going before. Israel leading them through the Exodus. Yep. And then the rear God, you got that other verse in Psalms, and the Lord comes before and he comes after you, protecting your front and your back. But um in this case, it's rec- it's discussing that northern invader. Yeah. So we've got we've got some very specific things God's telling them to do in relation to what he's asking them to say to him. In response to other people, why should the people say, where is their God? Peoples being other people, that northerner even, thinking, oh, I can come in and take what I want. Yippee. Um, And then, of course, back to the land. But now we're going to shift out of that into 21, where he, (laughs) I love this. This This is showing God's, he's going, I'm not just having a relationship with the people. I'm having a relationship with the land and God starts talking to the land. Do you mind if I read this next part? Go for it. All right. Don't fear. O soil be glad. Rejoice for Adonai has done great things. Don't be afraid. Wild animals for the desert pastures are green. The trees are putting out their fruit. They're f- the fig tree and vine are giving full yield. Be glad people of Zion rejoice in Adonai, your God, for he is giving you the right amount of rain in the fall. He makes the rain come down for you. The fall and spring rains, this is what he does first. Then the floors will be full of grain and the vats overflow with wine and olive oil. I will, well, let's let's focus on, the, on that section for, real quick. Okay. Um, so who in... Uh, <laughs> You see someone standing there talking to dirt. What is going to be your first thought? (laughs) It it draws the picture, again, hearkening back to Torah. It it draws the picture back of this is God's piece of real estate. Exactly. That he has um, long-term leased to Mm -hmm. the people of Israel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If they don't do it well if they don't honor him and follow him well, if they don't give the land their, the the land's Shabbat rest, the Shemitah every seven years and the Jubilee every 50. And if they don't, if they're not good stewards, good tenants of the land, hopefully this is drawing some verbal connections to a lot of the parables that Yeshua taught. If they're Mm -hmm. not giving the land its rest, if they're not good stewards of what they've been given, it's his real estate, and the, and he, as owner and king, can kick them out, deal retribution, and um, and restore the land. Right, and there you have your answer. It's not something I, I could imagine the 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 average uninformed reader reading this and going, "Wow, God's nuts. Mm-hmm. He's talking to dirt." But this is why he's talking to the dirt. What Matt just said, that is exactly why he's talking to the dirt. He's talking to the land. The land has been a player, a character in this narrative since the beginning. 
even when you go back to Gan Eden, which Eden was even mentioned earlier in this very text. God is hearkening everything back to the land, which is really very, very fascinating. You almost, um, when you're just thinking of a modern example, you kind of think of this uh, recent movie uh, series of um, Avatar. And okay. you you get James Cameron. No, wait, what's his name? Isn't that James Cameron? I don't know. Anyways, um, you get James Cameron drawing upon heavily a lot of what. Um, Native Americans, uh, Mayans, but it's not just that. When you, when you, as as I've said before, there's really a fascinating study that can be read, um, written by a guy named Arthur Custance, from his Doorway Papers, on the sons of Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Mm. Okay, and so Shem goes east. And if there's something that Shem is being definitely shown to be, it's that he is. He's incredibly intuitive here in the sense that in his, in, in his thinking, because he's able to look at something, he's able to figure out a way to do things um, in some very precise ways. The, the pyramids come to mind. You can't, mm-hmm. there, there's, and then when you even get into South America, there, there is uh, architecture there that is so precise, you can't even fit a piece of paper into the seams of these obvious seams it it looks like a seam but it might as well just be a carved line because these separate stones are so well fitted together you cannot even fit a piece of paper between them they're that precise and god has given them a very an incredible and ingenious engineering brain to be able to do things this way and one of the ways that they are able to do things is because they understand how the land works they understand how it works. And here's God showing this is how the land works. And it, there is this, yeah, there's there's any number of things. There's this uh, do- documentary. Um, I watched some of it. Like, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a hit or miss, depending on who you talk to. But um, they talk about fungi, um, mushrooms and the, and the like, and how um, there's a lot of communication between them and the uh, tree roots. And so there's, there's even some sort of synaptic understanding in the ground of how how every, all the living creatures, plants, excuse me, communicate with each other, right? And so while we can, there's this challenge to our already developed ideas that this could be something in a, opposition to that. This sounds too outside the norm. This sounds too new age or just too far out there that that just couldn't be it couldn't be God. I understand that 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 thinking, and I understand that fear to a point of going, I should stay away from that. That's something that's unfamiliar to me. The thing is, is that God is right here talking to the very creatures, to the very land that he's created and saying, hey, I see you. I know what you need, and it's going to be met, and it's going yes. to be restored. Now, that's another language that even harkens farther along when um, was the Apostle Paul is talking about the land and its groanings. Yeah. Right? Romans 8. Romans 8. Yes, exactly. And so there, there's a lot of key key phrases in here that I find fascinating. Um, for the desert, pastures are green. Desert. You don't really think of desert being green, right? <laughs> but 
when it comes to what he says later, he makes the the right amount of rainfall and it, rain of rain amount of rain in the fall. Grief. He makes the rain come down for you. When you begin to understand how rain works in that topographical landscape that is Israel, it's really quite fascinating. Everything that starts lining up and syncing up with why he's saying what he's saying here. Okay, just a quick little idea. Um, why doesn't Psalm 23 talking about rushing waters? He leads me by the still waters. What's the difference? The difference is, is that if you're standing in a wadi, the last thing you want is rushing water. Yep, because you get swept away in a flash flood. Boom, exactly, exactly. And when you look at these cisterns, these cisterns are actually positioned very specifically and intentionally along the base of these mountain ranges so that when that water comes down, it all gets captured there. And thus you have a sustainable way of having water in an area that's otherwise arid and dry. But that the fact that the desert turns green, we always think, oh, it's just one thing. It's just always fixed. The desert turns green. No, when these rains would come in, um, the wildflowers in Israel are truly phenomenal. I saw, I mentioned earlier, I saw these wildflowers up on the mountains where we're camping at, but I've seen some pictures. Boy, man, you're going to get to go and, and, and be in this and see this on a regular basis. But some of those flowers are truly phenomenal. And the landscape is spectacular. Yeah. Um, maybe one day we can, we can talk through some more of that and you can show some pictures of some sure. that you've taken before. But um, let me challenge that thinking. Desert is not always what you think it is. Right. And the desert has its own way of working. And God is assuring that land, you're going to work the way I designed you to work. Ooh, man. That's just so stinking cool. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. Oh. Mm. So good. So good. All right. Well, so shall we me... finish this chapter? Yep. You All want right. me to read 25 through 27? Yes, sir. I, this is still Adonai speaking. I, I shall restore to you the years that the locust, the swarming locust, um, in my translation it says, the canker worm and the caterpillar have eaten my great army that I sent among you. You will surely eat and be satisfied and praise the name of Adonai your God who has dwelt one, dealt wondrously with you. Never again will my people be shamed. You will know that I am within Israel. Yes, I am Adonai, your God. There is no other. Never again will my people be shame. Mm. Yeah, so his, he's, we're, so he's talked to the land. Now he's talking back to the people. Right. That you, I will restore you. Um, and, but not just that you, he's also, he's talking to both the people and the land. He's kind of talking to the both at the same time, really. Yeah. Um, the locust ate, the grasshoppers, the shearer worms, and cutter worms, just as a, so you hear what, what his translation is saying in this one. So there's the locusts, there's the grasshoppers, the shearer worms, and the cutter worms. And as we talked about before, that what it's talking about is total devastation, complete and utter destruction. Oy, that my army that I sent against you. Wow. Wow. So... Um, 
even with all that devastation, God is going to be the one restoring this. It's basically the, now I don't want this. This almost sounds a little too simple and I'm not trying to simplify God down to one simple act, but just to give kind of an idea, um, I'm going to send you to the corner, but I'm also going to be the one to call you out of the corner. Going to the corner is complete destruction and total devastation. That's I'm not trying to equate that, but just sure. to give a very simple idea, I'm the one that's going to get to call you out of that corner. I, I find this interesting. You know, I actually um, am reminded that my son sometimes feels like he, he has actually said, I don't like it when I have to be sent away for my punishment because it means I'm either being rejected by you or I'm being sent away from you. And I don't like that. I want to be close to you. Right. And I like how my son says that because wouldn't you rather be close to God even in those moments of going, I knew, I know I screwed up. I made a mistake, God, and I'm sorry. Don't send me away from your presence. We hear that through the narrative of Scripture. Right. Don't send me away from your presence. And here's even Jesus saying on the cross, um, uh, Why have you forsaken me? Thank you. Gotcha. <laughs> went brain I got you. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. So, so, here's all of that coming out to play. And I think it's just so, so cool that we get to see more of God's personality, more of God's characteristics, the very words back in verse 13, that he is merciful, compassionate, slow to anger, rich in, in grace, and willing to change his mind about disaster. He's willing to change. He's willing to listen. He, if, if that wasn't the case, then why would he have listened to Moses on Mount Sinai? Right. And why would he be calling them, blow the shofar, have a solemn mm -hmm. assembly? I will listen as soon as you're willing to repent. It's not like it's not like they're trying to persuade their angry deity to relent. Mm -hmm. He wants to be gracious. He wants to give them uh he doesn't want to send them away. But they mm -hmm. in in that analogy that you just gave with your son, um he would rather stay close to you and humbly respond, "Dad, I messed up." Mm -hmm. But what if he's not repentant? What if he doesn't know that he messed up? What if he's still right. obstinate? That's when right. the sending away takes place. Yes. So, and that's exactly what God yes. is doing. He wants mm -hmm. them to stay close and humbly repent and fix the relationship. But mm -hmm. if they continue to stay obstinate, continue to uh, reject him and, and his um, ways and means and the, what he has called them to be, then they're going to be sent away. And that reminds me of Zerorat. All the way back in uh, uh, Leviticus and Numbers, Zerorat. So it's, it's that stuff that forms on the skin or on your clothes or on your household or even on some goods. Oh, and, oh, oh, oh. Yeah. yeah. Other people kind of understand it. Oh, it's leprosy. Well, that's not leprosy. Sure. <laughs> but, but it is that. It, there was the time where it was the process of going, okay, the, the priests identify what it is. There's a time period set aside so that that will clear up. And if it doesn't clear up, then you're sent outside the encampment. And then you're having to come back and, and, and the, the priest will look at it and go, okay, well, you're, it's either you're going to have to wait longer or you're going to have to do this. And so there is a very physical act involved there that you see. It's another physical act, especially when you see Josiah, King Josiah, not... <laughs> Uh, sorry, every time I hear the name Josiah, namesake. Anyways, 
Um, see Josiah rending his garments when he hears the Torah. When we see something like that happen, we, we begin to at least have a visual understanding of what's going on inside. There's right. just severe emotional reaction and chaos that if there's nothing else to do, you just kind of rend your garments, right? But even back in uh, 13 and 14, tear your heart, not your garments. Yes. And turn to Adonai, your God. Great, we can tear our clothes all we want. We can change our clothes into sackcloth and put ashes on our head all we want. But what's really going on here? God's really wanting to... That's funny, the way the camera is set up. It looks like I'm pointing at the left side of my chest. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm pointing at my right side. God's looking at the heart here. And we see that also as a theme throughout narrative when it comes to a matter of the heart, right? And we also see it because this language that we've been reading is so apocalyptic, futuristic, that one of the things that God is going to do when he says, I'm going to take their hearts and I'm going to put them, take out the stone, heart of stone. I'm going to put in a heart of flesh, but I'm also going to put my, my law, my covenant into their hearts. There's a whole, and then that, then you get into this Deuteronomy seven and the circumcision of the heart and the, uh, sorry, there's moments where you just get overwhelmed with, with all of the, the mercy of God that it really does just shut you up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's really so, incredible just how how much warning he gives us and how much time he gives us and how extremely patient he is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So with that said, I wanted to touch on something real quick in verse 27. Sure. Now, my translation, you will know that I am with Israel. What does your translation say? Mine says within. Within, yeah. Makes you wonder what what word what word is going on right there? Mm. Why would his say within when mine's saying with? So I'm sure that it's I I would have to look into it into the Hebrew, yeah, but yeah. my guess would be that it's um, that I am joined with and dwelling among, mm -hmm. like a groom dwells with and lives with his wife. Yeah, um, I'm sure that this is hearkening all the way back to Exodus again and, and mm -hmm. the massive wedding in the Torah between God and Israel. Um, and when, when God is saying, I can't go down with you, Moses, because I'll devour the people. And then mm -hmm. after Moses sees his glory and, and uh, stuff like that, God goes ahead and continues the wedding, reconfirms the covenant, remakes the two tablets of stone and they continue together um i'm sure that that's what this is hearkening back to i would agree with that i would also say it hearkening with that word dwell that's the same word that came to my mind too and we've got this idea um about god dwelling uh what was it uh um Whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. That's Matthew 23, 21. 
Solomon built God a house, but the Most High does not dwell in handmade houses. So we've got this understanding of dwelling here. And um, when you go into the, um, let's see here, it, farther along into Acts, and it starts talking about how the Most High does not dwell in handmade. The skies are my throne. The land is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, declares the Lord? Nothing made by hand. Have not all of these been made by hand? Um, that's in uh, Acts 7, 48 through 50. And, um, but when we're going back to that same location where we were talking about, Matt, we get this very clear, very specific language that says that everything that's going to be given to you in regards of building this Mishka, this Mishkin, excuse me, this, this place where I will be, it has already been. This is simply a reflection, a shadow of what is already being already built. And so, um, and what I, what I like about this also is that it's not just a place. It's not necessarily a place I'm wanting to have as a footstool, so to speak. It's right. people. I want to be with you. I'm not, God, God's making that abundantly clear. He's not trying to attach himself to some sort of fabric, some right. type of wood or any sort of precious metals. He wants it to be with his people. And that, that people is Israel, and that people is also us Gentiles, us Goy now, where we have been called and being made part of God's family. Right. My people will never be, never again be ashamed or be shamed. Right. So obviously here at the end, there's there's short-term fulfillment to these prophecies there's also long-term fulfillment that has yet to become uh, yet yeah. to to manifest because um throughout the rest of the scriptures and throughout history israel and the jewish people have have been shamed over and over in different times mm -hmm. so they were restored to the land after after uh everything that's prophesied in Joel took place in the short term. And then God returned them uh, after the book of Daniel, God returned them to the, mm -hmm. to the land in Ezra and Nehemiah and, and um, all of that. Mm -hmm. But then there's, there's going to be another, another long-term fulfillment of when from that day forward, from the day of the Lord forward, they will never be shamed again. Right. Right. There's a lot of promises going on here. And if we know one thing, God is definitely a person of his word, per person of his promises. So um, with that said, take this reading. With, it, you know, this reading can be very, it, it can to some be very discouraging, um, depressing. But yet God, this language that he's using should actually instill hope. Yes. Really, that God is going to do something he said he's going to do, and he's trying to restore something he wants back. He wants us. I recently heard a reference to humbly partner with him. Yes. If we find ourselves exactly. opposed to him, we need to do something about that and do so rapidly. Mm -hmm. Don't put it off till tomorrow. No. But so he, why wait? That's why oh, even, uh, uh, oh, good grief. I'm getting ahead of myself here. As long as today is today, 
sometimes I get ahead of myself and I don't let my brain catch up to, 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 <laughs> um, yeah, the day is still called today. Yeah, who was that? That was was that Jesus or, or Paul? Wow, I'm getting myself mixed up here, not intentionally. Uh, you know, I don't recall. As long as today is called today, though. That statement, right? But even then, we hear this from preacher after preacher after preacher. We hear apostle after apostle, apostle Peter standing there at Pentecost at Shavuot, and he's saying, "Hey." This is something to respond to right now. Do it now. Why wait? And I think that that's the call that God is continuing to put on our hearts. Why wait? Why, why, why settle up with him later? Why, why not fix things now? He's, he's wanting to talk with you. He's wanting to hear what you have to say, or else he wouldn't have had you created. If you want to feel, feel, feel like you're needed, there's God. He wants you around. He wants to feel needed. He's your he's your father in heaven. What what other reason why he would? Well, there's probably others, but what what other reason would we would we really have in him in knowing that this is why he's wanting me to be here? Right. I get to feel no knowing that I'm needed because he wants me and he needs me. So. Amen. This has been a good conversation. I've really enjoyed this. I'm glad we jumped into this book because one of the reasons why I said very from the very beginning, this this language, I know that for me growing up for a long time, it was just this language of going, there's something about this I, I can't understand or I should, I'm not supposed to understand. It's highly mystical, highly allegorical. I didn't, it, it's understandable. It's achievable. God has not completely shrouded himself in mystery so much that we can't even begin to understand him on some level. He's made himself clear. We Absolutely. can understand him on some level. And what a wonderful day it is when we get to know who he is and the kind of real person that he is and the fact that he wants us. He wants us. He wants Israel. He wants us. And he's making that abundantly clear. We look at the world these days. I'm living in northern Utah. Matt's living down in Arizona. You had, what was the temperature yesterday at that 97. farm? 97. We've been in the mid-90s up here, which is very unusual. We've even been, we haven't quite tripped the triple digits yet that I understand yet, but we are still in that upper 90s, which is unusual for this part of Utah. And not only that, we're getting hit with certain storms that, even the farmer that lives next door said he's never seen weather like this before. Right. Right. But we can either be so consumed with what's right in front of us. There's it. There's, there's the, all of Egypt <laughs> coming after us. Oh crap. There's this, there's this very large body of water. We, we don't walk on water and we can't, <laughs> we don't breathe underwater. But yet God is continue. One of the things that God has continued to show me lately with everything going on with the climate is, this is his planet. He's the one creating it. What am I worrying for? I didn't do anything. I didn't make this planet and I'm not doing anything. And I didn't do something wrong with making the planet. And neither did God. But we get to rely on who God is. God's made himself very clear. And as a result, we get to understand that he is the one that's in control of this. The more I worry, the more gray I put in my beard. <laughs> right? So, Which has the benefit of making you look wiser and more like Gandalf. But... <laughs> Keep the color while you can. Thank you. And with so, that, 
Dear yep. listeners, we would love to hear from you. Please shoot us your thoughts, comments, questions, concerns, hopes, goals, dreams, aspirations, expectations, critiques. Bearded Bible Brothers at gmail.com. We check it very, very frequently. And um, and after we're done with our series in Joel, we're going to be answering a few of the, the questions that have been coming, uh, both pertaining to Joel and, and other topics as well. So keep your and emails coming. Can we shout out to our new listener in Italy? Bologna, yes. Italy. Thank you for, for, for we, we see you in our statistics. And so we thank you for joining us in, in this conversation. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Once again, beardedbiblebrothers at gmail.com. And with that, we will break into chapter three next week. And until then, God bless. <laughs> <laughs>